The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. We begin with stocks coming off their first down day in the last three. As key Fed, Fed officials, they really downplay the odds of a 2023 central bank policy pivot. And the energy markets, they're still reeling after yesterday's OPEC Plus decision to move forward with its largest output cut. Since the start of the pandemic, we have a live report from Vienna that's coming up. And new details emerging in Elon Musk reviving his bid to take Twitter private and why a possible price cut that's off the table, at least for now. Plus, the reviews are in for Apple's iPhone 14 Plus, how it stacks up against its pro peers. That's ahead. And later, why $2 million could be a small price to pay for a major piece of Major League Baseball history. It's Thursday, October the 6th, 2022. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I am Frank Holland. I'm in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off your Thursday morning with U.S. stock futures after the major averages. They posted their first negative session in three, but all still on track for their best week since June. We're looking at the futures right now. We see a move to the downside in about the last half an hour. The Dow could open up about 100 points lower at this point. The S&P and the Nasdaq both fractionally lower at this time. We also want to check the bond market after the two and 10 year yield. It closed higher for the first time in three days this morning. We're seeing right now the 10 year at three, seven, five. Still seeing that inverted yield curve um, pretty much flat, though, from what we saw at yesterday's close when it comes to bond yields on the 10 year. Also checking oil, WTI trading at its highest level since mid-September and on pace for its best week since late March. Right now we can see oil Fractionally higher right now, WTI at about 87 bucks a barrel, Brent crude at 93 bucks a barrel. And of course, we have to look at Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether, both of them right now. Well, trading slightly higher, actually, actually Bitcoin moving slightly lower right now, but still over that key 20,000 mark. This has been range bound for the last couple of months, right around 18,000 to 20,000. Something we're definitely watching. Ether fractionally higher right now. XRP having a bit of a run over the last few weeks. All right. That's a look at the cryptocurrency. Now we want to get a check at the overnight action in Asia and the early trade over in Europe. For that, we send it over to our Jumana Bersetti in our London newsroom. Good morning, Jumana. Morning, Frank. So a sense of stabilization coming through from Asian markets overnight. China is closed for the entire week, but the other markets performing quite well. Kospi up one percentage point. Hang Seng, the only little bit of red, down about four tenths. Nikkei up 0.7 percentage points, the highest level since mid-September. As for European markets, also a more positive day. While it's switching slightly more negative, but we started off positive just in the last half an hour. We've turned south. FTSE 100 in the UK down about a quarter of a percentage point. Worth noting that Fitch, the rating agency, actually placed the UK's credit outlook on negative watch. This is following on from S&P a week ago. So obviously the fiscal finances are, are getting some attention by the rating agencies here. Zetra DAX in Germany up about a tenth of a 
percentage point. We had factory orders come in down 2.4 percentage points month on month, slightly weaker than market expectations. Another sign that the energy crisis is beginning to impact Germany over here. But I want to turn your attention to a stock we've been watching very closely in Switzerland this week, and that is Credit Suisse. You can see the reaction is actually positive on the stock today, up 1.2 percentage points. This after JP Morgan upgraded the rating on Credit Suisse to neutral from underweight. However, the U.S. investment bank did cut its price target to 6 Swiss francs. And there has been a lot of speculation about the future of Credit Suisse. It's worth noting that they will be releasing their third quarter earnings the end of this month, where we'll get more details on their restructuring plan. Finally, another oil stock that we're watching today, Shell, is actually down 4.4 percentage points. Surprising, given the OPEC plus cut yesterday. But this is because the company has been warning its third quarter profits will be hit by lower oil refining and chemical margins, as well as a slowdown in natural gas trading. This after the energy giant announced a back-to-back quarter of record profits. So even though it's been a very stellar start at the beginning of the year, looking ahead, they are concerned about their margins uh, on some of their refining capacity, Frank. Uh, that is an overview of Europe, but I would say overall a more positive start to the session. All right. Thanks a lot for that overseas action. Giovanna Brissetti in our London newsroom. All right, turning our attention to this morning's top story, investors, traders, and consumers still digesting yesterday's decision by OPEC and its allies to slash output by 2 million barrels per day in what is its biggest cut since the start of the pandemic. The move is also expected to send retail gasoline prices higher after weeks of decline, sparking immediate new concern around inflation. Our Brian Sullivan, he joins us now from Vienna. Good morning, Brian. I know you've been on top of this story. Yeah, Frank, thanks very much and good morning. I mean, it really is when you come down to think about it on this sort of random street corner in Vienna, Austria, in this kind of boring and innocuous office building here, which is OPEC headquarters, how much money gets moved around. Yesterday's cut, 2 million barrels a day, which reality will be closer to a million because a lot of the OPEC nations are not meeting their quotas anyway, is going to account for trillions of dollars a year in GDP, that gets pushed around. Much of it's going to flow now to Saudi Arabia and some of the OPEC nations, maybe pull that money away from some of the Western nations that are going to pay higher. So you really think about the news and the monetary impact. It truly is amazing. Obviously, the breaking news yesterday, OPEC cutting by 2 million barrels a day. Also, by the way, it didn't get a lot of attention, extending what they call the Declaration of Cooperation. That is basically the 13-member OPEC deal and the 10-member OPEC plus nations extending it for really another year. Effectively, Frank, it is Russia aligning with OPEC for another year. Now, late last night, about 8.30 p.m. Vienna time, we did have the ability to sit down with Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. It was a wide-ranging interview, by the way. Here's a clip of it. Basically, they're not blaming the Federal Reserve and central banks on inflation for what they did, but they certainly indicated that the fight against inflation and some of the concerns that central banks have about the economy is one reason why they proactively went ahead and cut output. Listen. Of course, any central banker in planet Earth would like to have the best of the two worlds, attending to inflation and continue growth. But with this severity that you see, you run a big risk that you lose growth. What is happening now is, is coming, and we, see, we showed it in this trajectory and this... Uh, 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 things that we presented, that growth is coming down and there is a potential with more aggressive uh, um, rate hikes that this growth will come even lower. 
All right, so you can see they're saying they're worried about growth there. Believe what you want on that. I know that there are some people that won't believe it, Frank, that they'll think that it's more politically motivated, by the way. Uh, The full interview is up on CNBC.com, wide-ranging. And look at the headlines this morning, Frank. You know, Dan Juergen on CNBC.com saying basically it's sort of a blow to Washington. The Wall Street Journal editorial board saying, what is it, uh, OPEC plus snubs Biden once again. The Financial Times headline effectively saying, okay, this is sort of a blow to Washington as well. This is being politicized. And if viewers watch that full interview, I want them to know that you try to breach the politics with Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. And he'll say this. No, no, no. They view this as sort of Switzerland or Austria, kind of a neutral site, Frank. They will not go into the politics. (laughs) Me and others have certainly tried. Is this a political move? Is it weaponizing oil? And they will dodge and weave. The full interview, by the way, is up on CNBC.com right now. And the oil market's flat. But as you noted, best week since March. All right, Brian, so here's the real question. Does the U.S. have any ability to push back on OPEC at this point or counteract these cuts in any way? Okay, Uh, from an oil perspective, Frank, I don't think so. No, I mean, we can't ramp up our production that quickly. It will take months or years. I mean, we are adding a little bit of production, but we're still a million barrels a day below the average of 2019. We hit 13.1 million barrels a day. It will take a long time to get back there. There was a story, by the way, in the Wall Street Journal this morning that Chevron is going to be allowed to continue to operate in Venezuela. I talked to Chevron late last night. They would not confirm all the details of the story, but I got the sense it was directionally correct. Obviously, Venezuelan politics, very sensitive, but Chevron sort of semi-confirming. I don't want to make too much of it to me that the story in the journal is directionally correct, by the way. And uh, just another note, just this literally broke just moments ago. It's with gas, not oil. Venture Global, which is a big LNG provider, it is a private company, not public, maybe not yet, just moments ago announcing that they are expanding their partnership with Germany to import or export from the United States liquefied natural gas and import into Germany. So, Frank, the short answer to your question is no, but at least from a natural gas perspective, we are working hard to make sure that Europe will have natural gas. In other words, heat, power and light this winter. That news from Venture Global, by the way, breaking literally 30 seconds ago. So there you go. All right, some big news there, Brian. As you mentioned, that natural gas prices here in the U.S. up almost a percent and a half. Brian, always great to see you. Great coverage from Vienna. One thing, though. Thank you. I saw you on Squawk on the Street yesterday. You had a suit and a tie on. Today, you come with the vest. Where's the suit and tie, man? In, in the <laughs> luggage where it should be. I'm going casual today. <laughs> it's hot, by the way. It's a beautiful day. Brian, we're looking forward to seeing you back here in the U.S. Thanks for all the great coverage. All right, turning our attention to new developments this morning around Elon Musk and his renewed bid to take Twitter private. Our Silvana Hanau is here with the very latest. Always great to see you, too, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Good morning to you. Well, here's the latest. Elon Musk and Twitter are reportedly looking to reach an agreement to end their litigation in the coming days and clear the way to close Musk's revived $44 billion take private deal. That's according to Reuters. Now, amid their efforts to end legal proceedings, the two sides have, according to the report, agreed to postpone Musk's courtroom deposition originally scheduled for today, though the judge overseeing the case says she is still preparing for trial. We're also following new developments around the price of the deal. In the weeks leading up to Tuesday's announcement, the New York Times reporting Musk and his team had tried to revive the deal at a discount of as much as 30 percent, which would have valued Twitter at roughly $31 billion. Now, in the past week, however, discussions narrowed that to a discount of about 10 
10 percent, which would have allowed Musk to pay closer to thirty nine point six billion dollars for Twitter, which currently has a market cap of thirty nine point three billion dollars. Those talks ultimately did not move forward. Now, another sticking point, financing. Reuters reporting Apollo Global and Sixth Street Partners, part of the finance team for the original $44 billion take private deal, are now no longer in talks with Musk about providing capital. However, in a reply to tweets saying that neither Apollo or Sixth Street were part of the third-party equity financing announced in early May, nor part of the debt financing, Musk said, correct. The report says these talks ended months ago. That's around the time Musk started having second thoughts about the deal. Now, shares of Twitter are flat to lower this morning, but still on pace for their best week since April, Frank. Yeah, I mean, their best week since April, up almost 16 (laughs) percent week to date. Uh, I'm sure you'll be following every uh, tick and every cough of this one. Absolutely. We all are. are. Exactly. (laughs) All right. We come back here on Worldwide Exchange. Much more on OPEC, its decision to slash output and what it could mean for Fed policy in the year ahead. Former Saudi Aramco executive Sadad al-Husseini, he's here. Plus, your portfolio playbook amid this week's recent rally, Chantico Global's Gina Sanchez. She's coming up next and later on the show. You don't want to miss this one. How Apple's iPhone 14 Plus stacks up against its pro peers and which one may be your best buy. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's dive right into the markets. The stocks try to bounce back from yesterday's modest losses. As you can see, futures right now lower. The Dow looks like it could open up about 100 points lower at this point. Joining me now is Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global. She's also a CNBC contributor. Gina, great to have you here this morning. Thank you, Frank. All right, so we got to talk about oil first. That's just really the story when it comes to the markets right now. You believe the OPEC production cut and the expected rise in U.S. gasoline prices will be inflationary. A lot of people believe that. But we actually saw the markets, they rallied late yesterday, almost ended positive. They were really trying to end positive. And we've also seen some other moves. We've seen bond yields move up, but not that high. They moved up about 15 basis points from the start of Q4, a.k.a. Monday. And we also saw the dollar. It's actually declined week to date, almost three quarters of a percent. What do you make of all this? I mean, what are the markets supposed to do with these different actions happening at the same time? So if I'm reading the tea leaves of the markets, my assumption is that the markets are guessing that the Fed is going to realize that there is no amount of rate hikes that are going to keep inflation via oil down and that they might 
wimp out and uh, do a Fed pivot. Now, I'm not sure whether or not that story will play out. Um, but if it does, then the markets, you know, might have a reason to to rally. Um, if if it doesn't pan out that way, the scenario is pretty ugly because you end up in a really stagflationary environment where you have inflation that's coming in through energy prices that the Fed just isn't going to be able to touch. Um, but you'll have demand falling uh, at the same time, and it's just going to be really rough. Um, so you know your your outcomes are pretty binary. Why are you really worried about stagflation, which is generally higher consumer prices with little or no economic growth and also rising unemployment? But we just haven't seen the rising unemployment part. Is stagflation something that you see coming in the near term? Do you see a big turnaround when we get the jobs report on Friday or maybe next month? I mean, where are you seeing that that complete stagflation scenario playing out if we still have a really strong job market? You know, that is a good question. You know, the, we've seen a lot of wage growth, um, but that wage growth is starting to flatten out and it's probably going to um, start to show some weakness, um, you know, in the, in the coming months. And so that's the that's the beginning of, of weakness. We haven't seen, um, you know, a tremendous uh, uptick in unemployment, obviously, and that's been a big focus for the Fed. Um, but you are hearing uh, stories about large layoffs, significant layoffs, and I think those will start to add up. Um, certainly within the financial sector, you're hearing qu of quite a few layoffs. And so, you know, those are anecdotal. They don't, they are not moving the needle um, in, in terms of unemployment. Um, and so, yes, you're right. The economy has remained uh, pretty strong. However, there's one reason that the economy has remained strong. If you've watched sort of household savings and credit the reason the economy has remained strong is because credit balances are rising. And with higher and higher interest rates, those, cre those high credit balances are going to start to get really expensive. So I think that we could actually kind of have a, a, a bit of a, a very, very fast slowdown once we exhaust um, what we can do on credit cards uh, in the economy. All right. Of course, we've got to talk about portfolios. How are you positioning your portfolio right now with all that we've seen? One of the things I think has kind of been thrown in the mix of all these different factors is the political aspect. Uh, these cuts coming right ahead of the midterms. Does that add more uncertainty to the way that you play your portfolio? That uncertainty has been rising all year, Frank. I mean, if you look at the level of concern around geopolitical uncertainty, pretty much starting in January when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, the notion that we were a world at peace went out the window. Um, and so I think that there are lots of questions. And certainly, you know, you heard uh, you heard Brian reel off all of the, uh, the, the you know, the, the story, the headlines around this. Now, you know, the, I think volatility is going to remain high. I think the way that we're playing this is to stay defensive. So one of the things we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to remain re defensive in the form of things like health care. But we also really like quality names. And so we're not giving up growth altogether. Um, we're just trying to get it at a decent price over the over the long term. So we're picking up, you know, names that are really, really beaten down, really good names in the tech space. The GARP space is really interesting. But overall, our portfolio has a really defensive feel. All right. I'm looking at a healthcare chart right now, up uh, three quarters of a percent. Gina Sanchez, thanks for being here. Great to have you. <laughs> All right. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, $2 million and a piece of Major League Baseball history. The record-breaking deal in the making when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. Today's big number, $31 trillion. That's how much America's gross national debt has swelled to this week, 
according to a report by the Treasury Department. That's the highest level ever. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We have a news alert from the Bank of England. The BOE shedding some light on its move last week to intervene in the bond market. Remember, it launched a two-week purchase program for long-dated bonds and delayed planned guilt sales until the end of October. Today, we're learning in a letter from the BOE to the U.K. Treasury Committee that the central bank saw liquidity conditions were very poor in the run-up to that intervention. And policymakers say the move in guilt yields threatened to exceed the size of the cushion for many LDI funds. In that letter, the BOE says market repricing has been largely orderly so far, but pressures have been observed in parts of the financial system. The Bank of England says if it had not intervened, a large number of pooled LDI funds would have been left with negative net asset value and would have faced shortfalls in the collateral posted to banking counterparties. We're going to continue to follow this story all day. All right, but for now, let's get a check on the morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the very latest on those. Great to see you, Philip. Hey, Frank. Good to see you. Good morning. President Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden toured the damage done by Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida. The death toll rising with at least 122 dead in Florida and five in North Carolina. Ian is now likely Florida's deadliest hurricane since 1935. Tensions are ramping up again on the Korean Peninsula as North Korea fires two ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan. The U.S. Navy redeploying the USS Ronald Reagan to that area in response to Kim Jong-un's previous missile launch. Last week, that same aircraft carrier conducted naval drills with South Korea and Japan, joint exercises that the North slams as highly provocative. And finally, Aaron Judge's record-breaking home run ball could be worth a cool two mil. The owner of the sports memorabilia auction house Memory Lane has reached out to the fan who caught that ball and offered him a whopping $2 million. He told the Associated Press that he feels that offer is way above fair if the fan is inclined to sell it. Judge hit his 62nd home run against the Rangers on Tuesday night, the most ever for an AL player in a single season. And Frank, I got to tell you, I love sports memorabilia, but I would not be able to sell that thing fast enough, especially for $2 million. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate you being honest, Bill. That was, I thought you said you would hold on to it. I thought you were going to no. say you would hold on to it. Not yeah, at $2 all. million. That's a lot of money for a baseball. Seriously. For sure. <laughs> all right, Philip Mena in New York City. We appreciate it. You got it. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, Target it tries to get a leg up on Amazon, but will it be enough to burn through its inventory backlog? And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange or Brian Sullivan, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. Stocks looking to regain their footing after snapping that big two-day rally. That may be easier said than done. Futures pointing to losses ahead of the open. And oil finding fresh momentum after that dramatic production cut by OPEC. Former Saudi Aramco executive Sadat al-Husseini, he takes us inside the oil group's decision and what could be next. And hitting pause on rate hikes. New comments from one Fed official on when he'd like to see the central bank start easing its raising strategy. 
It is Thursday, October the 6th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to the markets after the major averages. They posted their first negative session in the last at last three futures right now. They're all moving to the downside. Right now, we're seeing the Dow looks like it could open up about 100 points lower at this point. The S&P and the Nasdaq down about a third of a percent at this point. We've got to keep our eye on it throughout the morning. We're also taking a look at the bond market. The 10-year Treasury right now, just about 3.76 right now, kind of moving between 3.76 and 3.78, just slight moves here, pretty much where we closed yesterday. Still seeing that inverted yield curve, something to continue to watch with all this recession talk. And, of course, we're checking oil. WTI trading at its highest level since mid-September and on pace for its best week since late March. Of course, after those OPEC production cuts right now, WTI crude trading at 88 bucks a barrel, Brent crude at 93 bucks a barrel. Both of them moving about a half a percent higher right now. All right, time to get a check of your morning's top stories. Our Silvana Hanau, she's back with those. Good morning again, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Good morning again. All right, here's what we have now. So one Fed had suggesting he'd like the central bank to potentially hit pause on its ongoing rate hike strategy. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic says he'd like to get the Fed's benchmark rate to between four and four and a half percent by December before doing so. Bostic says if the Fed is able to do so and hold at that level, he would then want to see how the economy and prices react. He added he is not advocating for a quick turn towards accommodation. Bostic's comments follow those by San Francisco Fed Chief Mary Daly saying more rate hikes are needed and dismissing talk of policy pivot in 2023. Meanwhile, Louisiana announcing it will pull nearly $800 million from BlackRock funds. The state's treasury saying the state is making the move over the asset management firm's push to embrace ESG strategies, adding the shift would cripple Louisiana's critical energy sector. The state has already pulled $560 million from BlackRock, which has faced increasing pressure over its ESG policies from Republican-led states and groups. And the Biden administration is reportedly looking to ease sanctions on Venezuela to allow Chevron to start pumping oil from the South American country again. Now, according to The Wall Street Journal, the potential move would reopen U.S. and European markets to oil exports from Venezuela, putting new crude onto the market. The journal adds that the proposed deal would require President Nicolas Maduro's government to resume talks with the country's opposition to discuss holding a free and fair presidential election in 2024. And Frank, in response, the Biden administration saying there are no sanction policy changes planned without constructive steps from the Maduro regime. All right, Silvana Hanau with those headlines. Thank you, Silvana. You got it. All right, turning our attention to this morning's top story, investors, traders, and consumers still digesting yesterday's decision by OPEC and its allies to slash output by 2 million barrels per day in what is its biggest cut since the start of the pandemic. The move is expected to send retail gasoline prices higher after weeks of decline, sparking immediate new concern around inflation. Our Brian Sullivan spoke with Saudi Energy Minister Mohammed bin Salman about that move. He says it was in response to hawkish central bank policy around the world, which will lead to a demand drop-off for oil and a possible recession. Joining me now, former Saudi Aramco Executive Vice President and Husseini Energy founder and CEO, Sadad al-Husseini. Dr. Husseini, good morning to you. Good morning. Nice to see you. All right, so you just heard the buildup right now. A lot of headlines here in the U.S. about those production cuts by OPEC Plus and the potential uh, impact on retail gasoline prices here in the United States. So far, we haven't seen any big major moves to the upside in oil prices 
at least not yet. Of course, it's something we're watching. But I'm reading your notes, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but I want to make sure I understand this. You're saying that the move isn't as drastic as it maybe seems right now because OPEC countries aren't producing as much oil as they can currently. Uh, absolutely right, Frank. Uh, that two million is not production. It's the capacities that were available or reported to be available. But then it turned out that Angola, Nigeria, and some of the others just don't have a million barrels of that too. So the only cut that we and our consultancy come up with is about 900,000 barrels. And that's uh, required because, frankly, the futures markets were in severe uh, backwardation. Uh, the open positions uh, on oil futures were way down as low as 2015. No capital coming into the industry. And it was running the risk of, uh, of having a shortage of supply without more capital. That's what it was all about. Uh, the agreement that OPEC uh, had arrived at, OPEC uh, Plus, back in April, runs out in September. And they had to renew it. And that's why they had this meeting now. It's uh, taking us through 2023. Gives us uh, a lot of uh, clarity as to where the markets are headed. So uh, overall, I think it was a very uh, appropriate and uh, necessary meeting. And the conclusion is actually to protect the market, including the U.S. Uh, shale oil and the oil industry all over the world, the energy industry, in fact, even the gas. So uh, this is uh, a more or less of a security for the long term for energy supplies. All right, Dr. Hussein, we're looking at some charts right now. Brent crude uh, up about five or six percent over the last week. Is that the kind of upside that we should expect uh, or, or you see bigger, more dramatic moves when it comes to oil going forward after these cuts? Well, Frank, uh, the, the problem, the cuts are just a small piece of what's happening. The rest of it are the uh, caps on the oil sales from Russia, uh, the uh, situation in China and how fast can it and will it recover, uh, the production capacity from uh, other energy supplies that have to fill in the rest of the energy pie. Uh, I'm talking about gas. I'm talking about coal. So all of those uh, have to weigh in. I suspect that the uh, $95 uh, to $90 is the long-term uh, price that we will be seeing probably through 2023. All right. So we're going to see some stability going forward to here. You kind of took some words out of my mouth a second ago. Um, why did OPEC feel the need to do these cuts when the thought is, at least right now, that China's about to reopen and demand's going to spike if and when China does reopen? Look, uh, we work with numbers, and the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, was showing in its short-term outlook uh, that supply was exceeding demand already uh, by 2 million barrels as of now, and the outlook was for more excess supply. So rather than wait for a a collapse in markets or uh, a flood of oil supplies, they're edging into it. Now, every two months, they will look at it. And in December, they will again revisit the subject. And if uh, there's a need for more oil, I'm sure they'll react. If, on the other hand, the global economy goes into a tailspin, well, they may have to do the other things and, and cut back a little more. Uh, they're monitoring it very carefully. I think that's what uh, Prince Abdelaziz was saying. That's what... Uh, the Secretary General, uh, Mr. Reis, was saying uh, they're going to track it very carefully. All right, Dr. Husseini, we appreciate you being here and we appreciate your insight. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, turn our attention to the latest on Elon Musk and his revived deal for Twitter. Reuters reporting the two sides are looking to reach an agreement to end their litigation in the coming days. 
and clear the way to close Musk's $44 billion takeover. The report adding the two sides have agreed to postpone Elon Musk's courtroom deposition originally scheduled for today, though the judge seeing the case says she is still preparing for the trial. We're also following new developments around the price of the deal. The New York Times reporting in the weeks leading up to Tuesday's announcement, Musk and his team have tried to revive the deal at a discount of as much as 30 percent. That would have valued Twitter at roughly $31 billion. In the past week, however, discussions narrowed that discount to just about 10 percent, which would have allowed Musk to pay closer to $39.6 billion for Twitter. Another sticking point, financing. Reuters reporting Apollo Global and Sixth Street Partners, part of the finance team for the original $44 billion deal, are no longer in talks with Musk about providing capital. The report saying those talks ended months ago, around the time that Musk started questioning the deal. Musk confirming Apollo and Sixth Street's lack of participation while responding to the question on the matter on Twitter. So a lot to follow there. Twitter shares up big this week, but certainly more drama in that situation. All right, coming up, Apple preparing to release the supersized version of its new iPhone 14. We dive into the bells and the whistles and whether the device is worth the wait for would-be customers. But first, as we had to break, a check on a few of the morning's big money movers. Ford announcing it's raising the starting price of its electric F-150 Lightning pickup truck for the second time in less than two months. The new price for the 2023 entry-level model will be nearly $52,000, an 11% increase from the previous price. Ford citing rising costs and supply chain issues for the move. General Electric announcing it is laying off workers at its onshore wind unit. According to reports, more job cuts could come for the business as part of a plan to restructure it due to weak demand, rising costs, and supply chain delays. And Samsung's expected to show a 25% drop in its third quarter profit when it reports its results tomorrow. The forecast by analysts stemming from growing worries around an economic downturn, potentially slowing demand for electronic devices and the chips that power them. It would mark the first decline in nearly three years. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A souped-up version of Apple's 14 smartphone is set to officially hit store, store shelves tomorrow. The 14 Plus boasts a number of features, from a bigger screen to a better battery life. CNBC.com's Sophia Pitt. She spent just the last few days taking this model for a test drive, making calls, texting. Not call, texting and driving, though, being Definitely safe. Not. <laughs> Thanks for Just having kidding. me, Brian. Sophia, great to have you on. So I think everybody wants to know, what's going on with these new phones? Is it worth the wait? Is it worth the money? Spell it out for us. So this is the iPhone 14 Plus. It comes out about three weeks after the other phone, so you can pre-order it. And I think it's available on Friday. Um, it has a huge screen, which is the huge benefit of it. Okay. And it's also has a, it has the best battery life of any, any iPhone that you can get. Ever, ever. Ever, yeah. <laughs> so... I actually tested this myself. I streamed YouTube videos all day for about 19 hours, and it didn't die until 19 hours, which is pretty impressive. That's pretty good. Yeah. So it's uh, $200 cheaper than the Pro Max if you want to get, like, the big phone, because some people really prefer a bigger screen, especially if they have a hard time reading or seeing. You can watch a lot of content on it. So the cheap, the, the fact that it's $200 cheaper and the fact that it's a huge screen are really the benefits of it. Yeah, who doesn't like to save money? Exactly. All right. So what about the mini? Like, what about the mini phone? I don't think they're making a mini this time around. A lot of people just like a smaller phone. I personally like you, like a bigger screen. But some people want something that fits better in their pocket or their purse or their, you know, whatever else. Yeah, purse is a key thing because I find (laughs) that a lot of times it's difficult to change my purse when I can't fit my phone in it. 
but they actually got rid of the mini. It was here for two lineups, and apparently people didn't like it. So Apple, Apple is taking a gamble that people are going to prefer the bigger screen, which is why they're replacing the mini in the 14 lineup with the Pro. But if you really want a mini, you can get an SE, which is a smaller version. It's about half the price. It's $429. It's an older version of the phone, and it's not as cool. Um, one more thing I have to say about the Plus is that it doesn't have the dynamic island or the always-on display, which are the two really cool things. So if you're not like a huge techie person and you just want a bigger phone with best, the best battery life there is in an iPhone, the iPhone 14 Plus is what you should get. I think what I want is your job. You're streaming uh, YouTube videos for 19 <laughs> hours for a job. That's well, a pretty sweet job. I know. I can't complain. All right. Full <laughs> review on CNBC.com? Yes. All right. We'll have to read that. I think you're also doing another another phone event coming up later today, right? I am going to Google to see their new phones and their new watch. All right. We'll have to go to CNBC.com and see that review as well. So, Sophia yes. Pitt, thank you for being here, waking Thanks up early. Me. We appreciate it. All right, let's stay on the consumer. As Target kicks off its deal days through Saturday, the early holiday sale features thousands of markdowns across all major categories. The move similar to those from competitors like Walmart and Amazon as the retail sector as a whole faces a surge in inventories and fears of a consumer demand pullback. For much more on this, let's talk to Jerry Storch, CEO of Storch Advisors. He's also the former vice chairman of Target and former chairman and CEO of Toys R Us. Always great to have you, man. I was a Toys R Us kid, by the way. <laughs> Good morning. All right, let's talk about it. I mean, I just got an email yesterday from Nike saying 60% discount. Come into the store. We got a lot of deals. Everybody has a lot of inventory. Let's first start with the consumer. What does that mean for the holiday season is when it comes to availability and also discounts? Well, you have to keep in mind that these mountains of inventory, and while they're out there, those mountains of inventory, are the products the consumer didn't buy. It's what they didn't want before. And so the retailers are going to have to put those on sale. So you're going to see great sales on products most people really don't want. Now, that's not always true. Of course, there's some gems in those mountains. When you look at the products people do want, the new products come in, like those iPhones we just heard about. Or, for example, the basics, the commodities people need, like food, staples, energy prices, those keep going up. So the consumer is kind of in a funny place. That's why the retailers are so worried and why they're trying to bring Christmas Heck, they'd bring it into the summer if they could, but they're trying to start it as soon as possible. Yeah, the holiday season is starting earlier and earlier every year. I mean, we have a fall prime day coming up next week. We just mentioned Target and their moves. Um, what's the upside for the retailers? I mean, obviously, they want to get rid of inventory, but they're obviously going to have to discount. Why not just wait and see if maybe the holiday season we want to take some of this inventory off their hands? Why push things up sooner? Well, well, I give, I give Target and Amazon credit for trying. So in Target's case, they are bringing their sale event forward earlier, and Amazon's are adding a second sale event. That's all they're really doing. They've had Prime in October before. Now they're having, but they've always had it once a year, sometimes in the summer, sometimes in the fall. Now they're having two. So what both of them are doing is they're taking initiative. They're trying to do something different. And retailers are often rewarded when they take initiative and do something different, get all the publicity. Look, we're talking about it now, right? We're talking about Target. We're not talking about Kohl's or Macy's or someone else. So they're hoping that's what will happen. But the other retailers aren't stupid. So they see this happening and they learn, I'm not going to let them get started before we do. This is a race. So trust me, everyone's going to be off and running as soon as that green flag drops. And, uh, you know, it starts uh, in, you know, now. <laughs> for all practical purposes. So everything's going to be on sale. It won't really make any difference in the end. Everything's going to be on sale all season, except for the stuff you really want. That you're going to have to pay full price for, or a premium like that Ford truck that went up $5,000 in price yesterday alone. You know, so it's, it's going to be a very promotional holiday season. 
all the way to Christmas. In the end of the day, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be a very good Christmas. I'm always a fan of the American consumer. She'll spend until she runs out of money, but I think she's running out of money this year because of inflation. And so we're going to see it in results. Retailers know it's coming. They're going to be very, very aggressive. But keep in mind, you got to buy what you want, not just what's on sale. All right, Jerry, we almost got to let you go. One last question. Um, you're saying a lot of macro issues are also going to impact this holiday season, whether it's the Fed, rising gas prices, and also the midterm election. How big of a factor is that for retailers? Hey, the election's a serious problem. I mean, I think there's a lot of us who just assume not deal with that divisive stuff going on in the world, right? But, you know, people really care about this election, and they're going to be focused on it heavily leading up to the election. It's as late as possible. You couldn't have a later election than November 8th, according to law. Right. And that's horrible because it's closer to Christmas. And then after the election, people will be talking about and upset about it or happy about it or whatever is going to happen. And that's going to have a tail to it. And the history when I've seen is that during elections like that, retail almost comes to a halt compared to historical trends until you get past that. And people go, hey, Christmas is coming. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's Thanksgiving already. And then they start buying again. And sometimes they run out of time. So it's not a good thing. Yet another reason why they're starting the sales early. All right, Jerry Storch, we appreciate the insight on the retail sector. Thanks for being here. All right, still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange. Stocks looking to bounce back after snapping a massive two-day win streak. Oppenheimer's John Stoltzfus lays out the key piece of data he says will be critical to the market's next steps. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates, contributors, and business leaders as we had to break. Here's Norwegian Cruise Line CEO Frank Del Rio. I've been both very lucky and very blessed to be Hispanic, and I wear it proudly. Being a Cuban refugee in the 1960s and growing up in Connecticut, one of the things my parents instilled me at a young age um, was a standard of excellence. Whatever you do, be the best at it. Work hard and great things will come. And if I could only give someone two pieces of advice, that would be it. Reach for the stars, we can all get there. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's on the agenda for Wall Street. At 8.30, we'll get weekly initial jobless claims and then a lot of central bank chatter. We got minutes from the European Central Bank's latest meeting. That's out at 7.30 a.m. this morning and speeches from several Fed leaders on deck. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, Fed Governor Lisa Cook, and Fed Governor Christopher Waller. So a lot of Fed talk. We're going to have to see how that moves the markets. Speaking of, markets looking to bounce back after snapping that strong two-day rally at the start of the week. Futures right now in the red. The Dow looks like it could open up about 100 points lower. The S&P and the Nasdaq both about a half a percent lower at this point. Your next guest says it is all about tomorrow's monthly jobs report when it comes to where stocks are headed next. John Stoltzfus is the chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management. John, great to have you on. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Howard. Good to be here. All right. So you're already looking ahead to tomorrow's big jobs report. But yesterday we had the ADP jobs report higher than expected. Does that kind of uh, give you a a hedge of what we're expecting, what we're going to get tomorrow? And how does that make the markets move? Well, I I think we have to we have to think that that ADP number sort of uh, curbed the enthusiasm yesterday a little bit within the market. You know, it didn't go down sharply or anything like that. But we'll have to look and see what happens tomorrow. We're, We're you know, we're expecting uh, that the the jobs number will be lower than it was in, in the prior month, and that would indicate uh, that the the effect of the Fed's policy is beginning to work through the system. You know, it's not a it, it, it's the important thing to take a look at. 
I think we're looking for an amelioration in terms of the economy running hot, looking forward to not necessarily cool, but to uh, to move a little bit off of the hot button, so to speak. All right. I did, I'm, I'm looking up amelioration. I got to be honest. I don't know what that means, John. Spell this one out for us. Better than expected job report. Good for the market or bad for the market? Uh, better than expected job number would be bad for the market. OK, but it depends how if, if the, the number is how hot the number is will really depend upon how the market reacts. It can, as it showed with the ADP number, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it wasn't a deal breaker. If anything, it just was, uh, it was, it was a very modest uh, losses yesterday that I saw on the screen. All right, so you're saying you're all about the GARP trade. I think everybody's looking for growth at a reasonable price. But after we get past the idea of looking for growth, what's the next metric? Yesterday I was on Halftime Report. Uh, Kevin O'Leary was all about the free cash flow. Some people are all about margins. Other people about dividends. For you, in this market with so much volatility, what's the key factor that you're looking at when you're picking a stock? I'd say it's a mix of all those things. You're looking for cash flow, profitability. You're looking for, for strong management, uh, ideally a dividend to come along with that. Uh, and products that really keep the loyalty of their uh, of their customers, as well as uh, a dividend policy that keeps uh, investors in the company loyal uh, to the company. Uh, we 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 look at it as growthier value, garpier growth. So we don't want to we don't want to stretch and get go out too far in terms of when will a com- company be profitable or something like that. We want companies that have shown that they can navigate tough times. And we've had plenty of tough times over the last 13 years, 14 years, uh, uh, to find good examples of that. And many of these really good stocks are deeply sold off in the course of this year's performance. John, we've had some tough times over the last 13 weeks. It's been a a pretty uh, difficult (laughs) second half of the year. So uh, I also want to come talk to about something that you're saying. Look for stocks where the baby is thrown out with the bathwater. That sounds like maybe a, a kind of different take on buying the dip. It, when, you, when you say oh. look for stocks, uh, you said no? No, I said the very right, Howard. Absolutely. When you're looking for babies that get thrown out with the bathwater, you're looking for stocks that are really good companies, like the ones I'm defining that you want to own, that just happen to get thrown out on these down days when the market broadly uh, just takes them all down. And uh, that's one of the things that's been very much a, uh, a hallmark of the sell-offs that we've seen of late has been broad selling that crosses, whether, it, whether it's defensives, whether it's uh, cyclicals, whether it's large cap smalls or mids, it, it, it looks pretty brutal. Reminds us of 08, although we don't think there's anything like this is not 08. This is very much 2022, and it's a process of moving from free money to, a, to an, an environment wherein Bond buyers get paid uh, for lending their money essentially to a bond issuer, and bond issuers have to pay for the privilege of borrowing money. Uh, during the pandemic, we moved from accommodative policies really to free money, which was boosted by overstimulation, we think, by politicians. And that turned out to be very bad for inflation. All right, John Stolfus, we appreciate the insight. By the way, man, it's Frank. But I'm going to let you slide. My high school basketball oh, coach used to always, my last name's Holland, he'd always say, Howard, when he'd yell at me. So I'm going to let you slide on this one. John, thanks for being here. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Right now, futures looking like they're going to open up slightly lower. We're going to toss things over to Squawk Box with much more on the market setup. The Dow looking like it could open up about 150 points lower uh, at this point. Now, obviously, we can see a lot of twists and turns over to Squawk Box. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only 
on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.